So, good morning. Hope you all slept well. So, the word Lent uh, in English and Northern European languages means a, is the same as it comes from the word for spring. Uh, carême in the Latin, French and Latin simply means 40. So, 40 days during which we experience the beginning of spring. And spring is a time of renewal, regeneration, new life. Finally, after the long, cold, dry winter, or not wet, wet winter, but uh, with the bare trees, we begin to see the daffodils here around Bombeau and little, little flowers coming up and uh, beginning of buds in the trees. So this happens every year, but every year it's a, a miracle. And of course it happens in ourselves too. We go through seasons uh, in our life journey. Uh, we go through dark times and times where we, where we die, where we seem to lose, where we become disconnected, and then times where miraculously we, we come alive again. So Lent is a, a time for us to reflect on the cyclical nature of human life and our way of participating in the natural order, in the ecology of the universe. Because the human being is a kind of microcosm of the universe, and so we reflect and, and, and collect the, uh, all, all the mysteries of the universe in our own human person and in our human family. So Lent is a time, I think, where we can, it's a time of hope. We go into Lent not in order to punish ourselves, but to prepare for the new lease of life, the new surge of life that comes to us inevitably after death. Whatever we may believe about the resurrection, our life experience teaches us without doubt that if we go into death, any kind of death experience, with faith, with openness, if we allow ourselves to go into the dying process, rather than denying it or running away from it. But if we go into it, we will, for certain, we will live again. We will come through into new life. And if that's true of this life, which if we, look, if we tell the story of our own lives, uh, we will see that, this cycle, 
at all, in all sorts of different patterns, but we come through and we come out. Uh, and if that's true of this life, then there's a good chance that it is uh, reflected in the ultimate n new surge of life that we call the resurrection, after which there is no more cycle of death and rebirth. So the resurrection in, in the Christian understanding is, is the termination of karma and of reincarnation and of that cycle of death and rebirth that we experience uh, throughout our life. So, so, so Lent is a time for us to, to reflect deeply on this mystery that we are preparing to celebrate at Easter. And in those few days of Easter, we plunge deeply into the Christian mysteries. And if we give ourselves time, if we take it seriously, and we enter into that liturgy, that drama of the three days of Easter, we will be informed, we will be changed. We, each year we will uh, understand it more fully. It's not just about going to church, it's about entering imaginatively and intellectually and emotionally into this great story, which is the story of humanity. It's, it's the human story. Anyway, so Lent is our preparation for that. And it's not about a time of punishment or being focused uh, uh, upon our failures and, our, uh, and our, uh, our sin or our guilt. So I wanted to talk um, a little bit this morning about Lent um, as, a, <coughs> as a positive uh, experience of reflection and insight into our own cycles, into our own inner life. And to do that, I think we have to, uh, we have to uh, correct some ideas about ourselves that religion has given us, negative ideas, negative images of Lent and Im negative images of ourselves. We have to focus on these and sh throw light on them and, and, um, and uh, decide whether we want to change or not. So Lent is a time of change, just as, as uh, spring time is. It's, it's a fundamental change from what is latent into what is actual, what is coming out, is becoming visible and tangible in the world and in our own lives. So Lent is a time where something that didn't, we was invisible before, you know, the flowers and the plants and the, the new animals that will come, 
that what was invisible before now begins to become visible, tangible. So, but we have to, we have to uh, connect that springtime, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, we have to link that springtime uh, of nature to our own internal process of regeneration and renewal. The question is, do we want to change? Or how deeply do we really want this transformation into new life to happen? And the answer to that is probably mixed. We want it, of course, because we all would like to be happier, to be more free, to be more uh, fulfilled. We would like to be more alive. On the other hand, we have formed certain habits. And these habits, or addictions, as they often are, uh, prevent us from changing or set up very powerful forces of resistance to change. So we want to do it, but we block ourselves. This is the divided self that St. Paul talks about in the letter to the Romans, uh, in a passage about sin, which Christians chronically and repeatedly uh, ignore and misinterpret. And this is where he, he says, where he separates the law from grace. This was his own religious conversion. When he moved beyond thinking of, his, of the human relationship to God in terms of law, and began to discover it as actually a relationship of grace. That's a big change. It was such a big change for him. It threw him off his horse and blinded him and uh, eventually changed his life. And it's just as big a change for, for us because we are kind of addicted to this image of the law. And we find grace quite difficult to accept. So, um, in that passage uh, in, in Romans, he describes this transition, this change of perception from law to grace, and it leads him to an insight into himself. He sees himself very clearly, brings, it, brings him to self-knowledge. What I want to do, he says, I do not do. What I don't want to do is what I end up doing and repeating. So it's a simple, classic description of addiction, the loss of freedom. But I'd like to ask you to think about what addiction actually means and even to think about whether there is a good addiction, a good form of addiction. But certainly what he's describing here is a new, well, a, a, a different understanding of the meaning of sin. In terms of addiction, 
and the divided self. The sort of the split in our own consciousness. And it is out of this split, he says, that uh, the, the painful and the bad and the vicious uh, and external manifestations of sin emerge out of this split within our own self. And it's to deal with this drama and, and nightmare of the, of the human dividedness, self-division, that the law was developed in order to try to control this, uh, this unhappy and chaotic uh, aspect of, of human nature and human relationships. And the law is effective up to a point. You know, we, we have laws that govern how fast we drive on the highway. And a lot of people speed, but also a lot of lives are saved because people are frightened that they will get caught if they speed. So law has a, a, a function, not all bad, we have rules, we need rules, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't really either explain or deal with the problem fundamentally. It's a temporary working solution to, to an endemic intrinsic fault or problem in in human nature. So the law doesn't solve the problem. Rules, regulations, dogma, all the, all the institutional framework of religion that we construct, uh, all the do's and don'ts of religion, or other kind of uh, ideologies, these don't really solve the problem, they don't get to the heart of the issue. What does is grace. And St. Paul's breakthrough transformation of consciousness <coughs> led him to see that where there is sin, grace becomes even more powerful. Where sin, where sin is, grace abounds all the more, he says. So the more sin, the more grace. Now this isn't exactly how the law sees it. The law would say, you know, if you're speeding 10 miles over the speed limit, you'll be fined 100 euro. If you're speed, found speeding 60 kilometers over the speed limit, you'll be fined more, or you'll have your license taken away because of the gravity of the offence. That's how the law works. It increases punishment according to the severity of the offence. And uh, so, you know, then you get whole judicial legal systems built upon the idea of punishment. So our, our prisons are filled with people with drug addictions who committed a crime, 
not because they were bad people, but because they were totally addicted to whatever they were addicted to. And our prisons are filled with them, and they're also filled with drugs, which are being sold in the prisons by the people who run the prisons. It's a crazy, crazy idea. We put them in prison to punish them for something that they could hardly be held responsible for. And uh, we say prison will make them pay this punishment due, uh, and then they will emerge and they can become good citizens again. But of course, that's not how you treat people who are suffering. You make them worse. And so 60 or more percent of prisoners regress and go back into prison. And the prisons get bigger and politicians come out more and more in favor of hard punishment and build more prisons. So, the law or grace? How does grace work? Well, Lent is a time where we should take time to reflect upon the graciousness of life itself. I mean, what causes the nature around us here at Bombeau, uh, the daffodils and the, and the crocuses and the, the new animals and, and the slow, slowly changing trees, what causes that? Not, you say it's a law of nature, but it's what's behind the law of nature. It's not that kind of law. It's the way it is. That is life as it is. It's free, not dependent on anything, it's just the way it is. That's what grace is. Grace doesn't come to us in our human journey um, as a reward for being good. It comes to us because this is what it is like, and it, it is given freely, graciously, and uh, in a sense it asks nothing of us. There's nothing we have to pay for it, except it just says, please receive me, please accept me. But of course, if we're not able to accept ourselves, we can't really believe or accept this grace either. So the other thing that we, we do at Lent is to reflect on why we desire change but block it ourselves. Why do we become addicted to the negative patterns of our lives, which we can recognize and, and admit, but still find almost impossible to become free of. So, in order to come to this uh, kind of insight and self-knowledge, there's a, a tradition uh, of asceticism. We find this in all religions period of time where you uh, voluntarily but healthily accept certain uh, disciplines, 
that will help you to see more clearly, to change the way you look at things, uh, to refresh your self-awareness. So in the rule of St. Benedict, we live in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict here at Bomberg. Um, he has a chapter on Lent. And the first thing he says is that um, our, our whole life should be seen as a continuous Lent. But because we uh, can't keep that up, keep up that quality of, of, of freshness and enthusiasm or sharpness of mind uh, for long periods of time, uh, we take a, make a special effort during these 40 days of springtime to do something a little different. So we introduce a change of some kind into our life. Now that might mean giving up sugar in your coffee, or giving up cigarettes, or giving up, you know, sweets, or giving up Netflix. Uh, it might also mean that you take some extra time for reading, for and, uh, and make sure that you get your, at least your two meditations in every day. Not just as an intention, but as a practice. You actually do it. So I said, during Lent, I will do it every day. So whatever it is you do or give up during Lent, the purpose of it is not to, not to punish yourself for the sins you've committed, but to, uh, to refresh your way of seeing and being uh, by introducing a small change into your life. That's why you don't want to do anything too dramatic or uh, harmful to yourself. You just put a small change that sort of wakes you up. So that's why St. Benedict says you should add something to your usual measure of service. To your prayer, maybe some abstinence from food and drink. And each one, each person in the community must freely accept this. Freely, not imposed. In the joy of the Holy Spirit, they can offer something more to God, he says. It's a childlike way of expressing it. It's the kind of way that the children, whose words we heard about meditation yesterday, might describe it. I'm going to give something to God. I'm going to give God a little gift by giving up coffee, uh, giving up uh, sugar in my coffee. Well, that's a childlike way of saying it, but it, it has a certain value, as long as you don't take it literally. So you may, he says, deny yourself some food or drink, or he says sleep, most people are sleep deprived anyway, uh, today. Um, but maybe more relevant to us is he says, deny yourself unnecessary uh, talk. So superficial talking that doesn't really go anywhere or mean anything. Where we just talk to fill up the silence. And he says, idle jesting, idle joking, sort of 
silliness. He's not saying be miserable, because we're doing this in the joy of the Holy Spirit. But we, we look at ourselves, our character, our habits, our way of talking, being with people, and we may say, well, I will. Okay, I will try to be a little more centered, a little more uh, grounded in my true self. And he says also, leave aside bad habits. Well, we all have bad habits. Whatever, it may be habits of the mind, or a way of relating to people, or uh, the body, whatever. We, we all have certain bad habits we, we, we know about ourselves. And he says we should, we should also put special emphasis upon prayer, upon reading, and what he calls compunction of heart. The compunction of heart is a beautiful and ancient idea of the Christian ascetical life. Asceticism is, this, is, is, is like going to the spiritual gym. It's uh, exercise, it's training, it's keeping in, in good condition. So, um, compunction of, of heart in the Christian ascetical wisdom is allowing the pains of life, the experiences that break our heart, allowing those experiences and pains to open the heart. So breaking the heart is painful, you shouldn't intend to break somebody's heart or break your own heart, but it happens in different degrees. And, but when it happens, in the ascetical wisdom, spiritual wisdom, the teaching is use this as an opportunity not to close yourselves and to defend yourself against being hurt again and you know or in bitterness and anger and vengeance but keep that broken heart open this is symbolized in the in the uh, catholic tradition of the idea of the sacred heart the, open, the opened heart of Jesus. So, compunction of heart is, is being able to live and to sustain this openness because what happens when the heart is broken and opened in this way, grace flows out of it. We discover the grace, the free, gracious presence, of God in us, already there, already there, just trying to get out. And uh, there's a great, a great line of uh, Oscar Wilde, a poem by Oscar Wilde, written after his heart and life had been broken then, shortly before he died. How else, he's, he wrote, how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in. How else, except through a broken heart, will the Lord Christ enter in? 
So this is this is this is there's one aspect of Lent where we we become aware of the the natural resurgence of life as we come through a cycle of death and emerge into a cycle of, of new life. There's also another meaning in Lent, which is that we we exercise ourselves in a certain way to understand the, the patterns that can block that new life. So we come to know ourselves and confront ourselves, especially in those areas of our life where we are addicted negatively to habits, evil habits, as they as Benedict calls it. Which are, the, which are forces within ourselves that block us from experiencing and welcoming this new life. So, in the uh, desert tradition, the early Christian desert that gave us the teaching on meditation, <coughs> they were also they were very practical, very down-to-earth. They weren't abstract, the theologians, they weren't uh, dogmatic people. But they were intently concerned with this process of, uh, of releasing this life, this life of the spirit within themselves. And they recognized that in order to do that, they had to confront a systematic resistance in ourselves, unconscious, because nobody would be so stupid as to resist grace, but it's an unconscious resistance. And the fact that we, <coughs> we recognize that there's unconscious and involuntary, what I want to do, I do not do, uh, has given us the idea of original sin. That this is so deeply buried in human nature and it goes back as far as we can see so something must have happened to, to make it like this. We call that original sin. Which is okay, certainly is part of human nature and all wisdom traditions recognize that we have to confront it and do this work. And meditation is a primary way in all the wisdom traditions of dealing with this issue. In The Cloud of Unknowing, this little book written on Christian meditation in the 14th century, um, it speaks about the work of meditation, the work of meditation, as, so this is not meditation as it's taught, you know, in the marketplace today, which is primarily about relaxation and well, you know, what's, what's the, uh, not well, but yeah, well-being and feeling better. But in the wisdom traditions, it's spoken about as work, creative and transformative work, but work. So the cloud of unknowing says. This work of the prayer of the heart, this work of meditation, 
dries up the root of sin within you. So it's a very powerful and dramatic statement if you, if you, if you think of the time that he was writing this in a time where sin was seen almost exclusively in terms of the law. And the church was the law enforcer, telling everybody what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And if they didn't do it, they would be punished. If they did do it, they would be rewarded. So here, from the mystical tradition, which is always in tension with the institutional, we have this little phrase that gives us an insight into the gospel itself. What St. Paul is describing. This work of meditation gets to the root of sin and, and, and breaks the addiction, snaps the force that is holding us in bondage. So the desert uh, teachers uh, who also gave us this teaching on meditation understood this. They were good psychologists and they developed a system of explaining this, these blocks and resistance <coughs> that, we, that we have inherited, or that we are all trapped in to some degree. And they, they spoke about them as the, as the eight principal faults. So eight principal patterns of thought and behavior that uh, keep us locked into this uh, law-related uh, addictive uh, resistance to grace. And then these became misinterpreted as the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and achadia, or laziness. So these, there's, there's, there were a couple of films, Hollywood films made recently about the seven deadly sins. Um, these are dramatized. Uh, um, descriptions of these forces at work. So this is not just a religious interpretation, this is, a, this is a, an insight into the patterns that are created. Because there are, if, and if there's a pattern, you can change it. If it was completely random, you couldn't change it because you, you, you wouldn't know where it came from. Or, what it was related to, or how it was connected to other uh, aspects of yourself. But once you see the pattern, you can work on the pattern. The first thing is to see the pattern and accept it. So in, you know, in the 12-step program, the first step is, yes, I am an addict. That's the first step. It's, it's the first step of the teaching of Jesus. Turn around and see, he says. Repent is the, is the word, metanoia, but it means to see, to change your perspective. So, 
Recognizing these behaviors, habitual behaviors or patterns, conscious or unconscious, that's the first step in what we should be doing at, at Lent, in Lent. Habits are funny things. We like constant change because we, we like to change our habits. We like variety, diversity, distraction. We get bored with things after a while. We can be put to sleep spiritually or emotionally by, by habits that we form. At the same time, we become very unhappy and anxious if we don't have habits, if we don't have structures and rhythms in our life. So the art of happiness, or the art of living, St. Benedict understood this very well, is to, is to create healthy habits that have a flexibility about them, that allow you to, to, to adjust them, or change them, or even step outside of them for a while, and then to be able to come back into them uh, in, a, in a new and refreshed way. So our character, our personality, is expressed in the way we form or break our habits, unconsciously or deliberately. And this is, where I, this is what I meant by saying that we could look at the word addiction in a, in a different way from we, we're used to. We normally think of addiction as being uh, something negative and destructive uh, of our personality. And, but, but the word addiction itself literally means to give yourself to something. Give yourself to something. Of course, that's what human beings want to do, need to do. By nature, we are happiest when we give ourselves. This is the joy of parenting. You give yourself to your children. It's the joy of, of loving relationships. You give yourself to the person you love. It's the, it's the, um, the self-giving of, of being committed to a work, a meaningful work, uh, to the gospel, for example, in which you give yourself to, the, to, uh, to that work, give yourself to God in that way. So, but everything depends upon what you give yourself to. In um, the U.S. at the moment, the, the biggest, worst um, addiction crisis in history is in full flow. And the, op the opioid, opioid crisis of so 40,000 people a year at least die as a direct result of prescription drugs. 
opioids that they became addicted to. They didn't want to give themselves to it. Well, maybe some of them did, experimented, but nobody would want to give themselves to something as destructive and life-destroying as, as that. And what are they? Prescription painkillers. Ways of numbing the pain. Ways of running away. Ways of denial. Ways of avoidance. So if we give ourselves to something negative, because it's negative means, not that it's enjoyable, it means negative because it is denying reality. If we give ourselves to something that is in denying, in denial of reality, it will become a destructive addiction. And it's, uh, it's becoming endemic. We're all worried about the coronavirus, but uh, there are other crises and viruses uh, which are destroying our, our, our society, our civilization, really. And um, much worse than a, a virus which is going to have a limited lifespan. And these kind of negative addictions are reducing life expectancy in modern societies. In Britain, for the last 10 years, the life expectancy has been reducing for the first time in 100 years. It's, it's um, linked to austerity, the economic policies that were adopted uh, in order to favour uh, the unjust and unequal distribution of wealth. So the poor inevitably suffered much more than the rich. Um, and life expectancy is decreasing as a result of that, especially among women in poorer parts of the country. And life expectancy in the US is, is also, um, has been dropping uh, over the last few years. So, an addictive society becomes self-destructive. It becomes actually in love with death. It doesn't allow death to become part of life. It, death becomes the dominant dark force. And not surprisingly, out of that mentality comes an increasing level of violence, divisiveness, hatred, intolerance, and we, we see the inability of political systems to um, resolve their differences without violent divisions. So, let's just come back to sin for a moment. These patterns that the desert teachers recognized and described, uh, they described them in order to help themselves and others, their students, to, uh, to see the patterns 
and identify them so that we can become free from them and how to work with them. But these came to be seen as sins. That means, in ordinary language, things about, things about ourselves that we should feel guilty about. So the Catholic tradition, you go to confession to confess your sins because you feel guilty and you are then given some penance. Well, the penance is today, maybe, you know, an Our Father and Hail Mary, but the Irish monks were, had more imaginative about their penances. They would say, you know, if you've done something, committed a big sin, broken a big law, then uh, you'd have to go walk from Ireland to Rome and back. Or, you know, punish yourself in some, in some uh, dramatic and, and painful way. So sin, we understand, in a popular sense, as something that we do about which we should feel guilty or at least repentant for and then confess. But the word for sin is, in Greek, translated from the Hebrew, is hamartia, or hamartia, which means missing the mark. So if I throw something to you and you miss it, that's hamartia, just dropping something. It's making a mistake or failing, failing to do something. Just reflect on what we feel like when we fail at something. When we aim to pass an exam and we fail. Or we aim to, to do a certain work and we feel that we're failing. What do, what do we feel about failure? We feel guilty. We blame ourselves. And if these feelings of guilt and blame uh, are allowed to become dominant in our, in our minds, then these feelings will just make things worse and worse and worse and worse. And like as in addiction, we will not be able to recover or change. So we just go into a downward spiral of isolation and self-crucifixion and self-hatred. We may um, be able to put on a good front and pretend that we're, you know, doing okay, or, or we may think of ourselves as martyrs and look forward to the moment when we will actually die and get it over with. We, we may deal with this uh, feeling of failure, this unhealthy feeling of failure, uh, in different ways. But it will become an addiction in itself. Because it will rob us of our freedom to change. Addiction, negative addiction is what prevents us from changing from being reborn. The alternative is to look at our failure 
are missing the mark. It's actually hamartia is actually a, a term from Greek archery. So it's like you know, with a bow and arrow, and you, you 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 fire the arrow at the target and you miss the target. That's hamartia. It's not breaking the law. It's just you know not hitting the mark on that occasion. And what do you do if you if if the arrow doesn't hit the target? You don't go and pick the arrow up and stick arrows in yourself, you pick it up and you say, I'll try again. I'll keep trying. With practice, I may become a little, a little better. And if this understanding of sin makes us humble, instead of thinking, you know, the, the ego, when it is controlled by the feeling of failure, of sin, becomes like a negative dictator. That ego then sees itself as, as different from everybody else. I'm the world's biggest, worst failure. I'm the worst sinner in the world. It's just an inverted form of egoism or pride. And again, it becomes addiction, a pattern. But if we can adopt a different approach to it, we understand what St. Paul means, again in the letter to the Romans, when he says, all have sinned. We're all failures. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's original sin. That's human nature. That's where we start. And we have to see that as a, as a, as a pattern in, in human life. For President Trump, he says, the only thing that matters is success. And that's reflecting uh, an idea that dominates our, much of our culture. And what could be a worse spiritual failure than to think that the only thing that matters is success? Because it's nonsense. It, it, it's illusion, because we all fall short of the mark. We all have sinned and fall short. The, literally, the word hamatia, which means uh, missing the mark, the roots of the word are very interesting. It, the roots of the word means not sharing, not being part of. Hamatia. So, when you hit the mark, when you hit the target, there's this feeling of connection. And you may celebrate, you know, and people slap you on the back, but there's the feeling of, of belonging. When you miss the mark, there's the feeling of exclusion and of isolation. And we have to be very, very careful as that feeling begins to develop in relation to our failures. Because if we're not careful, because we are weak human beings, that negative feeling of exclusion, of isolation, of being 
cast out as a failure, the worst you know, thing we could imagine, a reject, that can overtake us. When we think of sin in biblical terms, we usually think of uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. That was the beginning of original sin, but it's not really what the Bible says. The Bible describes the eating of the tree, the fruit of the tree, the forbidden tree, not as uh, the beginning of sin, but the beginning of death. Their eyes were opened and they saw they were mortal. So death entered into human awareness, as it does at a certain point. Children are not very aware of death, but we become aware of death later. But sin itself began in the biblical terms soon after with the story of Cain and Abel, where death was inflicted by one person on another. Violence, cruelty, sadism, whatever. The tendency of the mind in its addictive nature is to misinterpret its own failure as if failure deserved punishment. It's interesting, if you notice in advertising uh, campaigns today, how often uh, they will use the idea of addiction uh, as a positive thing, like Netflix series. People want to get addicted to it, or books, you know, series of books, or uh, all sorts of things. They don't usually, I think, speak about physical addiction, you know, like cigarettes. They don't say buy the cigarettes and enjoy addiction, but addiction itself is a selling uh, feature because it promises people who are already addicted another trip, another uh, way of, <coughs> of being in opioid pain control. So the tendency of the mind in its addictive nature is to misinterpret its own failures as if they deserved punishment rather than grace. That's what, it, that's what failure needs, the grace to start again, over and over and over again, just as we come back to the mantra, over and over and over again. And we fail when we say the mantra in every meditation. Every meditation is a failure. We miss the mark. Why, why beat ourselves up about it? Why not just keep faithful, keep returning? Then the question is, does meditation become an addiction? Well, you have to work at meditation for it to become an addiction. But in, in a sense, it is an addiction. You're lucky when it becomes an addiction, which is to say that it becomes a good habit 
as second nature in your life. But it's like learning a language. Are you addicted to your to your to the language you speak? Yes. But we learn it, and we want to. If we want to learn another language, we have to work hard at it to to be, for it to become second nature for us. The difference in addiction is whether what we give ourselves to is negative and life-destroying, or whether it is uh, healing and opens us to grace. So, so these are some thoughts about what is this, what we're doing at Lent. Uh, seeing the cycle of rebirth in our own human journey, personal journey, linking us to the cycle of the seasons in nature, but also a time where we reflect uh, clearly, deeply upon the patterns uh, in us that prevent this new life from emerging eventually leading us into the total new life of the resurrection. What is it? What are the patterns that we are held uh, back by? And why a practice like meditation offers us a, a way of entering with in the joy of the Holy Spirit, with complete freedom, entering into that good habit or discipline that allows us to remain open to change and to grace. <clears throat>